You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here. And it's an extreme pleasure tonight to introduce David Jaffe, who's going to talk to us about Rubens. We've been trying to get him here ever since the wonderful Rubens appeared in our new transformed AGO. And it's taken us till now, but I think it's going to be definitely worth it. So, David Jaffe is senior curator in the Department of Painting, National Gallery, London, who has specialized in the work of the 17th century Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens. David, an Australian, has a BSc from Melbourne University. So I'm very interested at some point in finding out how you switch from science to art and art history. And an MA from the Courtauld in London. Previously, he was the curator of European art at the Australian National Gallery in Canberra and curator of paintings at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Amongst his publications is a significant work on the massacre of the innocents by Rubens from the AGO's Thompson Collection. And I understand that it's the 400th anniversary of the creation of that painting, so please come up and tell us about it. Thank you. Yeah, this is a special birthday celebration. I apologise for those who can't understand Australian, but I've deliberately made this lecture in visual braille, so there's going to be a lot of images, so you won't get bored. Uh, I'm obviously starting with an image you don't need to look at because it's you know, 100 yards away, and in fact the format of this lecture is it should take about an hour, and then those of you who want to refresh yourself by seeing the painting, you can do it up to 830 and those who want to interrogate me, I'll give you second opinions from other people in the audience. Uh, so let's start. Uh, the, the Massacre of the Innocents was painted by Rubens just after he returned from a 10-year sabbatical to Italy, which was, it was a normal training process for many northern artists who wanted to get away from the reign of Antwerp and... Uh, you know, holiday in the sun of Italy, but it was a long sabbatical. He had the advantage his brother was working in Rome as secretary to Cardinal Colonna, and he had the advantage he could speak Latin, so he quickly adapted to Italian. Only two years after he was in Italy, he was writing all his inscriptions in Italian, and it became his language for letter writing. And I just remind you that... And this is a kind of pricey of the ending of a lecture, because if you're like me and you find it very soporific to have the lights down and someone talking you know, boring stuff, I'll give you the ending first so you've got it. And I'm showing you a sculpture by Tetroda. Uh, in fact, it's an aftercast by Tetroda, which is kind of a key to the way the massacre was formed. And it was something Rubens came to quite late. Uh, Tetroda was a, a, a fellow... Flemish artist. He started working in Rome probably with Guillermo della Porta, a name we've all forgotten now, but he did the tomb of Paul III Farnese and Tetrode almost certainly worked on that with other Flemish artists. And the Flems are considered good hard workers and so useful to join your workshop. Uh, art was always a production, it was a business. And I'm just reminding you that this sculpture uh, 
sits there almost as an interpretive key between the extraordinary painting, it's one of the greatest paintings that the artist made in his whole career, and some very impressive drawings after the sculpture. And so when you go upstairs again, either today or when you graze there another time, you know, look carefully at them, you know, look at the way he animates them. I mean, I'll give you an example. Fred here is growing hair. He's meant to be a scun figure. We don't see a lot of him in the streets these days, but it was considered the way to learn anatomy. Um, you know, he's an écorché, a scun figure, but he's already got hair and he's beginning to be alive. And he's probably a view of this sculpture from looking down on the top. And then he's done free interpretations of them. And any of you who've had a medical training would know that some of these loops, these anatomical gestures aren't in reality, but they're a fascinating way of animating the figure. And that's why Rubens suddenly realised that this was a key to making a new kind of art for his age. And so the drawings, the absolute best context you'll ever get for looking at a painting like The Massacre, because it's almost like seeing the DNA of the inventive process. And I'll just show you one more view. Oh, it'll come up a bit later. But what I want to do in this lecture, we'll go back to Tetroda. You don't have to remember how to spell him, but remember you've got a cast up there of his sculpture. But he started in a very different way. He started looking back at Raphael. And the frustrating thing about Rubens is we have very few paintings between when he qualified through the guild system to be a painter sometime in the uh, early 1590s and when he went to Italy in 1600. We just simply don't have the images to be sure they were done uh, in Antwerp before this trip. His mum writes in her will that there are many beautiful paintings in my house by my, by my son. And we're not sure if they were that beautiful, but all mums think their son's paintings are beautiful. And so we take it for granted. And what I'm showing you here is one page from the only document we have. Uh, this is one page from Rubens' pocket book, his little portable pattern book or sketchbook. And these are the kind of things he noted down. Has anyone seen any artist? They're always doing little scribbles that he thought was interesting. And there's another page, a uh, double-sided sheet like this one, uh, in the courthold in London. And the rest of it burnt in 1720 in a big fire in the Louvre with a French furniture maker who was still using this pattern book for inspiration. So it was still a working trade tool. And his name was Bull, and he makes that very over-the-top kind of inlaid uh, metal and tortoiseshell furniture that you always see the glitterati of the um, super-rich. Uh, and so, but I'm showing you, in fact, a very interesting sheet just because it is a survival. It's something, in fact, the drawing on the right we first published in the Thompson Massacre book. Artists always love to publish an undiscovered drawing. It's sort of kind of kudos, like, you know, you've, you've caught a snap of a celebrity. And um, it's of the Farnese Hercules. And there's a little Greek inscription reminding you that he was quite happy writing in Greek. And he's, um, it's recording... A store where you had to be uh, aware, of, two monkeys were told to be aware of a man with a black bum. And then the Hercules grabbed them and they suddenly understood why they had to be careful because they'd be hung over his shoulder. And so this is, a, it's an amusing, um, learned association Rubens had 
drawing a, a famous statue about Daedal Farnese Hercules. And on the other side, Mrs. Totally Unpublished, you can clearly see he's doing a very quick pen sketch of Paul preaching from the, uh, a Raphael design. Uh, it's actually, this is the cartoon in the Victorian Albert Museum. And you've got an, a guy just up there trying to catch a football and get the people's attention. And uh, Rubens obviously thought that gesture was powerful enough to record. And he's written that the cube is the source of all stability. There's a kind of a Latin inscription. And he's actually drawn a cube on the figure. So he's clearly thinking, how do you mount a figure on the ground? You know, he might have been 14 or 15 when he did this drawing. And he's, he's battling with that concept. And beyond that, we only know the pocketbook through copies. And I've just recently been doing work on it because we're going to try and do a book reconstructing it. And the, the strange thing is when you get into this problem, I'll, I'll just remind you, this is the Farnese Hercules. And this is the kind of guy Rubens obviously thought was the kind of guy who could stand up on his own two feet. And he's big. Can you see in the Goltzius print at the bottom? Um, Thanks to Brenda Bix, I raced around and found a nice image of it. He's bigger than life size and he's strong. And Rubens puzzled over this in this same pocketbook. We know that because some of the passages were extracted and uh, even published before he, it got burnt. And he thought, in antiquity, they just must have been bigger guys. You know, they were obviously ice hockey players. In fact, he actually stresses the only current people who are any good to look at are rowers porters and dancers because they were obviously the kind of strong men of his day and they're the only useful models and he pictured back in antiquity there are all these steroid ridden chaps who could sort of you know crush the, the the golden apples of Hesperides in one hand and you know no one kicked sand on them on the beach and so on and uh, and he thought maybe we've just become more degenerate since you know we've been playing too many computer games and drinking beer and so on. And that was his explanation. And I just put the line up. I show you the Farnese Hercules, the Commodus as Hercules, and the Apollo Belvedere. They're all by Goltzius, and they're all done in about uh, the 1590s. And these were the kind of a canon of what uh, artists aspired to then. And they used these very strong men as their communication message. Uh, we'd find it a bit over the top and suggest they wore a few more clothes now, but that wasn't the issue then. This was antiquity as a kind of vibrant, gigantic force at the time. In fact, if you go to Washington, you'll see an Antico show, an artist working about 1500, 1520, who's actually made models of all these in, in very beautifully finished uh, gilt bronze, like the one I'm showing you an example. In fact, this isn't by Antico, but I'm showing you an example of Farnese Hercules from the Met, because they look more expensive and they look more complete than the actual marbles. The marbles have got a few chinks out of them, and they like the idea of them rattling out there. So that's a background. You know, Rubens was sort of competing with these, and I just put that up for people who are bored. That's a detail of a very early Rubens painting now in grass, done in 1602, and I'm just showing you that he was always sensitive to print sources because I think this same torchbearer coming down the steps is a pretty good match. But that's a distraction. That's not the real argument. The real argument is how does he use the pocketbook and how can we interpret this to understand the kind of selective uh, process of a young artist, the bowbird process. And I'll give you an example, two sheets from one of the copies. I'm actually showing you the Courthold copy. 
Now, Mr. Johnson, and my job in the first instance is to find out what was he actually copying. And these two guys fooled me for months and months. Now, you can all see, when you're given this, the solution, um, it's kind of easy. But I was trying to work out why were people crawling along without their heads. And here I vaguely remembered. I'd seen him somewhere before, and then I found him in a Tintoretto print. And, you know, so he's, he picks up a print made in... Uh, painting made in 1548, and the print um, by Mafam was almost the same date. And he picks that up, and he's put it with a lot of other guys who've been flattened. You know, this is what happened when you get quarreled with Cassius Clay, really. You had to hit the deck. And um, this was also p clearly people who were slaughtered. So he seemed to arrange it like a topographer, putting in letters, you know. If I ever need a guy who's been flattened on the ground, I'll come and go to this page and I'll find one. And um, that's, it was obviously the way he thought paintings could be made. As a very young man, you could bolt together good precedents. And that was a surprise. I mean, I always think of artists as, you know, wild creative types who just go off and do their own thing. But Rubens almost took an academic attitude to start with. And there's a long tradition of this. We, um, we've got a very good um, medievalist here. Sasha, and she'll tell you that there are pattern books surviving from the 13th and 14th century, which seem, you know, how do you draw a lion? You go to the pattern book and find out what a lion looks like. And it's that kind of idea. And now you can see, I don't even have to tell you, you can solve this problem yourself. Where are these silly guys crawling around? And you see, here they are. And, you know, you look at that print and you think, why did he home in on that? Or maybe somewhere else he's... In fact, he does. He picks the Jupiter up for the page on gods. But he didn't pick anyone else up. That was the only people, as far as I can see, in the whole print he thought were worth doing. And it's very irritating that you find he often picks quite obscure people. You know, so you've got to look at the print as if you've got a microscope in your pocket. Um, and, that's, and the other curious thing is, and you're seeing it here, he's tending to pick Raphael and Raphael Workshop. This is actually the boiling of St. Cecilia. She's um, testing the oil to see if it's the right temperature. And her husband's already become, as you can see by the heads, you know, he wants to have a sort of organ donor view of the whole event, and that's why he's out there. Um, and it's kind of pretty gruesome, and I'm warning you this because we tend to think of a Baroque as gruesome, but this we know was a Raphael commission done in about 1519, and so it was always a streak in Italy, and I think it's the same streak you see in Hollywood. You know, they're always kicking each other to bits. And you, I remember telling once my eight-year-old child not to be scared as we were watching one of his crazy movies. I can't even remember which one. And he said, don't be silly, Dad, you know. So I realised that eight-year-olds think violence is fun. Um, and the other thing he did is he copied Holbein. This is a Holbein of death. You know, we've all got to face death. Death is grabbing the um, skirt tails, I guess, of a monk. And, you know, it's warning that we're here for a short innings and we don't know when it's going to happen. It was a great marketing ploy of the church. You know, you better give a tithe to the church. Come to Mass because if not, death will grab you. And Rubens actually copies. This is Rubens' copy of a drawing. And then he thinks about it, and this wasn't my idea, this was discovered by Pat Mills Henderson, and he thinks this would make a great girl-boy event, so the skeleton has suddenly been fleshed out, and um, the poor Ab, Abbas, his Abbot has been turned into a girl, slightly daring decolletage, I think, even for that date, 
And he, th he thinks I can use that image. You know, there's a sense in all of these, in fact, are Holbein prints, and uh, the women don't exist. You know, it was a proper church event, and he's had fun transforming them. And so the, the, the sketchbook isn't always literal, uh, and that reassured me. I thought, well, that's what artists do. You know, they, they get an inspiration and then think, how can I exploit it? I'm going to very quickly race over a few others just to give you an idea. This is about the most obscure print I've ever heard of. It's by, in fact, Domenico de Barbary. You don't need to ever remember his name. But you can see he, he's whipped just one figure from the whole print. And then here's a couple of guys who've just had a very bad hangover experience. And I still haven't found where they came from. If anyone knows them, you know, contact the, the people here. And sometimes the drawings are more fun. There's another whole sketchbook that isn't quite so um, disciplined in its style. It's much more vigorous and it seems much more free. This is the so-called uh, Van Dyck. Duke of Devonshire's sketchbook, but it's clearly, again, copying from Rubens, and this is actually copying from a Michelangelo relief, and then he's doing three variants, you know. If you're pulling someone's hair, what about if you twist them and you pull the hair, and what about if you drag them? Some of these other images may or may not be uh, from other sources that no one's yet discovered, but it's possible that a lot of them are free variants. In other words, it's a typical sketchbook. It's not just a pattern book. And Van Dyck, if it is Van Dyck who's the copyist, was clearly more interested in the inventive element of it. And others are kind of unexpectedly dry. This is a uh, typical um, little detail. It's extracted from a psyche one, and we only know it because of a flame, but it's from that. Here's a uh, canafore figure, you know, a woman running around with a basket. And here's clearly a party, a bacchanal. And that's reassuring there's a bit of a paintbrush. It's not all just photocopying, because some of it is like photocopying. Uh, and then this is fun because you can see this is the print that he got this idea from, this um, woman carrying it. And luckily, he even used her. Can you just see her in the background? And that's what I was hoping to find a lot of. And sadly, I haven't found as much as I expected. I expected this was his pattern book. He'd use it all the time. He clearly kept it with him for the whole of his career, but it didn't infiltrate the art as much as I was hoping. Um, so I thought well, that was a waste of time trying to work out the sources in that. <laughs> but occasionally you get lucky, and I'm just showing you one where I got lucky. Um, this is again the Chatsworth version of it. You see it's a bit freer and more lively. And he's clearly copying Fred here. You see Fred, the guy with attitude who won't let you into the lecture theatre without um, a ticket, you know. That, that's Fred. And he, he's reversed it, and there's a lot of flipping. By the way, it was hard to get to the lecture theatre because we only wanted a really intelligent audience. I remember someone here was complaining he couldn't find any signage for it. That was deliberate. We didn't want anyone who couldn't find their way down a corridor that had no signs. So you're the bright ones. You should see the ones out there still looking. Um, anyway, and when you know he's copied this particular Tadeo Zucchero print, you suddenly realise, well, maybe this is the idea for um, Moses on the... It's not actually Moses, I make that up, I think it's Aaron or someone, on the throne looking very commanding, you know, with his paw out and his other hand down. And this becomes James I. This is the sketch. I'm pretty sure this came here with the Hermitage oil sketches by Rubens about a decade ago. Um, but this is James I. And another guy, not exactly literal copying, but having the same effect, fanning the energy up to him. Um, and then there's 
This guy feeling a bit cold, he's realised winter's coming at the bottom. Now, this is an important sketch done in, probably in uh, 1630 for the banqueting hall uh, in the new palace of um, Charles I. James I paid for it and then died in 1625, and it's honouring James. If you're like me, you know, we Commonwealth people don't take the king queen's lineage back. Um, carefully, so we don't always know all the details. And it's about the union of Scotland and England, something that never quite happens when the rugby's on anyway, but anyway, that's what he's depicting over here. Uh, and it was one of those few peaceful political unions that happened because he happened to be the James VI of Scotland or something complicated, so he pulled it off by an act of birth. Um, but it's nice when you occasionally see a figure when you do identify it, um, that it actually relates. And there's thousands of other explanations for these figures here, but this one you actually say, well, Rubens, we know, was looking at this print. And so you don't have to go to Veronese or you know, up the road to someone else as a source. You can say this is a plausible source. And I was hoping for lots of them, and I didn't get them, so I went home very sad. And I just show you, when you get desperate, you think, where in the hell does Fred come from? You know, this is a Pieta sketch, or is it a Pieta sketch? Because... And then you, uh, this is a Lucas van Leyden, where it's in fact a woman in that pose being held. Uh, it's Mary, you know, she's swimming while Christ being carried on, carrying the cross to Golgotha. And it's pretty similar pose to this chap here, and not such a bad, you know, this is John clearly, and, and so this would have to be uh, John again, if you like. But, and then are these three variants or these other sources, we'll never know. But you sort of spend a lot of time trying to work out how liberal can you be in reading Rubens' mind. And in six months' time, I'll tell you the answer to that. But the other thing is, um, Rubens is absolutely famous for um, doing beach girls who forget to get overdressed, and they're very well um, equipped. It's like a Matisse back. You know, you get these wonderful sense of layers of energy in them. And they're buff, you know, they're not going to be sloppy girls. Here's the sketch, here's the painting. And a lot of this comes from a tradition in Antwerp. He wasn't doing something that radical. This is a typical, uh, I think it's Neptune. You can always tell Neptune because he's got the barbecue fork and Aphrodite. And this we know from, this is a 1599 entry, but you could go back even into uh, 1500. And they kept pulling out the same floats. In Australia, we call it Moomba. I'm sure, you know, they, here they do call it Columbus Day in New York. I don't know what we do here in Canada, but you have the same thing. You get a lot of floats going down the street and everyone's happy. And you get a lot of fish. And obviously, you get a lot of girls who are having trouble getting their hair done because they've got these funny tails on them. And you see the tails are compulsory. You know, it's a, it's a new kind of flipper that they're wearing a lot. And these, this idea of these sea nymphs was clearly traditional to some extent, but for Rubens, the thing that excited him was this kind of sense of the back and the energy of the back. You know, and, of course, you can seriously think about Matisse, but he was probably thinking of Giulio Romano. And I'll just show you a Giulio Romano print, which we know he drew in the Chatsworth one, with the um, compulsory tale. And he didn't just take these girls, he also drew, and this I couldn't believe when I worked it out, this sleeping Hercules guy. You see the guy with a hangover and his club out the side and he's got a lion skin? Well, he's just there. You can probably just make him out. There's his lion skin. There's his hand up with his hangover. And so you get there and you think, that's fun. And if anyone can find me the tennis player, you know, I'm not sure if it's Nadal or what, but 
I can't work out where he comes from. He looks like an antique relief, but uh, I haven't found him yet. But the one I was interested in was this play of you know, a man supporting a globe and the back and trying to bend the back at different angles. And, of course, that becomes the fantastic um, helper raising the cross. And I'm showing you the wonderful uh, recorder uh, in Toronto in the 1630s for the first attempt of that about the same time as the massacre, the 1610 raising of a cross now in Antwerp Cathedral, though done for a, a, a tough wharfy church. I always think the tough wharfy church helps explain the tough wharfies, and we know he liked the porters on the wharf. You know, so he was actually saying, you guys, you're my models, this church is for you. Um, and you know, some of it's more obvious. He, he grabs this guy, and you can see why he grabbed this guy. And it explains what for a while was worrying me. This curlicule shape is actually a jug handle sitting out there. So the copy is sometimes is quite literal. Um, we'll talk about these guys with hangovers later on. He actually did copy that too. This is from a famous Rosso print. Um, Rosso was a guy working, I guess, in the 1520s in Rome. And he thought, when the Rome got sacked, I better make some engravings because there's no other way of getting money. You know, it's like a recession. Wash car windows or make engravings. And then I wanted to show you, more seriously, the whole world was changing because of prints. And we can think about that because we have now Google Images. Any of you who go on to Google Images, you get saturated. Well, it's exactly the same. Suddenly art changed. Um, printmaking started. Art printmaking started in the uh, 1470s with Mantegna. And it's not a great surprise that the first... Um, Known thing that Dura copies is a Mantegna print. You get copies of Mantegna prints even in this pattern book, that, the so-called Rubens pocketbook. And, you know, I give a classic example, Raphael's uh, Judgment of Paris. This is a print that only existed as a print. He made it as an art print for an audience that he could send everywhere else. And he, he made it so he could show he could tell the story in a terrific way. You know, there's a river god, a few confused people, you know, uh, flying around. There's uh, Zeus, you know, in charge of the act. And I guess it must be Apollo. I've never really thought who's up there because he seems to have a bit of a zodiac around him. But it's the story we all know. This is how Brad Pitt gets to have a job, really. Because, you know, this is Paris um, saying, I'll pick uh, one of you three girls. You know, you want to know who's the most beautiful. And Venus whispers in his ear. She bribes him, in fact, as all smart girls do. And she says, I'll give you the most beautiful girl in the world if you pick me. So he says, oh, that sounds fair enough. And unfortunately, Helen was married. That was the problem with the Trojan War, really. Helen hadn't been married. It would have been working out a bit better. But anyway, here's um, Venus receiving the golden apple. Uh, and the others are looking already a bit pissed off. This must be Juno with a peacock. Um, you know, bad idea to get the, the, the Zeus's um, wife off, offside, but they didn't think of that. And um, this will be Minerva, who really thinks she's been tricked, you know, with her throne, uh, kind of Medusa head. And it was one of those stories that was going to end badly, but from an artist's point of view, it was perfect because... It doesn't always work with beauty contests when you say to the girls, I can't make up your mind, but if you take your clothes off, it'll be easier. But it clearly worked here, and um, that's what you see. And then a lot of people carried on in this tradition, and Rubens, I think, thought about it as a young artist and thought, I can do one too. You know, 
it became a kind of hit topic to do. And I'll just show you, this is one of the very few paintings by Rubens that was probably made in 1598 or 1599, before the trip. And it's interesting that he is clearly thinking about the Raphael print, but already as a very young, ambitious artist, he's not exactly doing it. You know, you, I'll flash you backwards for a second so you can remember. I mean, the basic action is the same, you know. Boy gives um, apple over to girl, and other girls decide they have to get dressed again. Um, but it, the, the sources aren't exactly there. I, I think the one that's closest, in fact, is Venus's um, associate Cupid, um, you know, because Venus is goddess of love, um, and Cupid... He's always hanging around and telling you, you know, you, if you really want a prize, you've got to dress a bit more radically. You know, it works on boys, he says. You know, I've, I've done studies, you know. And um, so Rubens comes out and he more or less keeps it, but not exactly. And he does things that are unusual for this subject. He decides river gods, and we know they're river gods because they always have his urns waiting for the rain to trickle out. Um, should have girlfriends, and there's a few precedents, but not many in art. So we think Rubens thinks girls are a good idea already. And then he thinks, what can I do for her, Juno? And he remembers another Rosso print, and he thinks, that'll be great. That will make people know immediately she's Juno. And in fact, in the X-ray, we know that this leg comes even further behind the other, just like in the Rosso print. And you sort of see something of the way Rubens' mind works and he's already responding to prints in a kind of aggressive way. But what really frustrates me, he's also looking at prints that I'd never heard of. This is a print that gets copied in the pocketbook. I show you here the court old version and a new one I've found in Madrid copying it. And then there's even a very, very faint drawing, which some of you in the front row will be able to see, of this bishop saint. Um, and I've got absolutely no idea, you know, if you'd ask me to bet which print Rubens would have taken. I would have never thought of this one. So you get this contrast when we're picking something that's fairly obvious. And of course it makes Rubensian figures look a bit out of date because you realise Rosso's already got there. Um, and then you get things that are slightly more bizarre. Cupid, if you actually think about Cupid, is a pretty haunchy guy. He's one of those guys who's just squat lifting in the, you know, in the Olympics and not the, your obvious baby. And he turns out to have a very funny pedigree. This turns out to be owned by Rockox, and we'll discuss this later, who was one, the, the mayor of Antwerp at the time. And you can actually see in this side drawing from the pocketbook, that's for the missing link, if you like. And so you can learn a lot more about the process of snapping things together, sometimes from the pocketbook. And that's why I think it's an interesting guide for a, you know, a teenage artist's angst, really. I mean, he didn't do hard rock, but he might have. And this is another one when you come to Paris in the same painting, and I only clicked quite recently. It was the clenched buttocks that made me suspicious. You know, this seems to be, is he trying to be a tennis player posing or something? And then you get it in an earlier um, Goldsius print, Sorry, uh, this is Martin DeVos print. And apparently, I hope everyone knows who Gad is. This is one of the uh, Old Testament patriarchs, Gad. And clearly actually made from a sculpture, because this is a different view, probably from a tetroder or something, in one of his over-steroided guys. But I think it's quite easy to believe this is the source for it. And so Rubens, 1598, was prepared to 
go to his source book, his pattern book, and clamp together the painting, you know, and from a, a variety of sources, but they merged to make a painting. And some of the things are even more crazy. This is a typical Guillermo de la Porta relief. They're almost illegible, so I'm showing you a drawing after it from the late 16th, early 17th century. And you suddenly find, and I've highlighted them in colour because even I couldn't believe you could find them, these guys here come from this part of a relief. Um, I think you can particularly see this guy here who's got a problem with his hangover. It's actually, I think the giant's been beaten up and we're seeing the debris. And you come over here and you find the other string of guys, including this guy here squatting here, and this is the whole string. So he's rather peculiarly drawing from something like this, which no one's ever noticed because no one ever thought he would. And then just to top it up, just thinking you think the puzzle's solved, he's copying uh, Ammon uh, illustrations to a Bible, um, and he's picked up this figure from his own copy and shoved it in to fill the gap. And you, then you get this kind of idea, this kind of anything will go as long as it's the right kind of thematic source. And it's not what I wanted my painter to be like. I thought, you know, painters are meant to be out there dreaming of great inventions and kind of fusion of lines, the Leonardo idea. And, of course, it didn't seem to work for the baby Rubens. And you might think, therefore, he's a disappointment, but I think the exciting thing is he realised this isn't the way to go. Uh, so in the very early Rubens, this may be another painting from that sort of date, you do get a lot of figures that look as if they could be straight out of these strings of um, squashed figures, and he just went, page six, I'll put all those in, and page seven. And then when I want guys showing off, I'll get this Herculean figure to grab a few girls. And I'm not sure if I prefer girls' rumps or horses' rumps at this date, but you know, he was mad about horses. Um, and you can see how he made up. But that dies quite quickly, and the, the switch is very interesting. And I think the massacre, in fact, has a different kind of genesis, if you really think about it. It goes from the guy who first said you've got to do massacres, Raphael, you know, the god of all designers. And, you know, there is a wonderful um, idea of bodies in action. And, of course, Raphael was not the first, but one of the early ones. I think Hercule de Roberti might be the first guy in the late 15th century who thought, if you want to make it really work, you get the guys to forget to get dressed before they rush out for this event. You know, um, um, so you, it gives you more anatomical expression. And you can do all sorts of exciting things, which we find a bit tough, but with foreshortening. It's even been argued that this poor lady in distress has collected the bits of her children. You know, it is absolutely a tough subject. Hair pulling was allowed. Um, and it's to be like a Hollywood movie in a way. It's meant to make you feel on edge, but not quite go over the decorum lines. I mean, everyone had to do it. Once Raphael had done this print in about 1516, 1517, and it was, again, an art print. There's no painting that exists by Raphael of it. It became compulsory in the 1520s. Um, Baccio Bandinelli, you don't have to remember him, he's another Florentine, but he was sort of asserting his right to continue after Raphael died in 1520. He was almost saying, I can take over from Raphael. And he does this very complicated, mannerist version of it, but almost sets a new style for artists. 
and got lots of guys with angst and attitude, you know, they're trying to scare you off for a parking spot, aren't they? You know you won't get a parking spot when he's there. And sometimes, and in the pocketbook, we know Rubens must have um, gone over it because these two figures are flipping this figure here and a figure on the other side. He's actually reversed them, but they're there. I can't see that myself. I'm just checking it's true. So, you know, Rubens was aware of this tradition and it went on. And this is the worst example I know um, because I don't understand it at all. It's Martin Van Heemskerk and it was done, I think, in 1546. And we know it was done for the um, cloth makers. Now, can anyone explain how this helps sell cloth? Um, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, it just goes to show, I mean, about that time Bruges was getting into economic difficulties and I think you can see why, if that's what the cloth makers thought would help. It's like having Cicciolina selling a, you know, Italian fashion, you know, it's just, uh, it didn't work either really. Um, but what you do get, the idea is it, it becomes a genre, you no longer read it as a vitally nasty figure, you read it as an exercise in extreme foreshortenings, you know, expressive gestures, you know, she's clearly upset. And um, he's, he's learnt how to use the profiles, I guess, the silhouettes. Uh, these are, you know, grief in time-lapse photography almost going on. And, and uh, there, there are other examples. You could, you could bore yourself looking at them, but the main thing is to get the idea that this was a topos. This was the kind of standard you could go against. And sometimes, of course, it was political. This is a, uh, one made in 1529, a German print um, complaining about the Turks coming and massacring. You know, again, always it's the women and children would suffer. This is a real um, documentary one, but I don't think many of them are as political as this. We know this is political. It's the, the inscription, it's a long poem saying how they're absolutely fed up with being run over by um, these Turks, the bad guys. Um, and the Turks got to Vienna, you probably know that. It was kind of a pretty touch-and-go time for Europe, like the Euro is today. Um, and then, but Rubens thought, I'm not going to do another print. He could have entered the contest. He knew engravers, and in fact he used engravers quite self-consciously to propagate his own inventions. I'm going to take it back to a different um, level by making it a painting. And it's almost as if the massacre is a conscious decision to sweep away this kind of um, saturation with images from the engraved sources and rethink a, the subject as a painting. And I think that's why it appears so fresh, so strong, and so startlingly powerful. You, you can love it or hate it, but you can't ignore it. It's, it's a masterpiece of communication. It's using the devices that you'd expect to some degree, but he's rewritten the rule book. He's saying you can't ever get this kind of power and this immediacy to make the hair stand up on the back of your head, uh, head when you look at it 
from a print. You've got to go back to painting and you've got to go to a large painting. And I think that kind of makes the massacre a different kind of event. And he'd done horrific paintings already, we only know, and in fact from an engraving, which just shows he was using engravings exactly at this date. You know, this is Judith and Holofernes, a famous uh, Jewish legend of a woman who goes to the enemy camp and takes off the uh, head of, I suppose, Gaddafi's the equivalent now. Would have saved a lot of um, avgas if someone had done that, but... Um, it's a fantastically scary image. Um, we can even get that in the print. But it's not as scary as the massacre. It's not as powerful. It's not as visceral. And I, I think Rubens was also looking at different kinds of sources. I mean, no one's really suggested for the conversion of Paul, which is done in about 1505-6, you know, just before the, this. And I think um, one detail that made me realise he was using this... Um, Kuka or cock, depending on how you want to say it, um, tapestry design is the hand on the rump. Anyone who's ever ridden horses know that horses don't really like you putting a hand on the rump. It's quite a good artistic event. But if you go into Rubens' own painting, you see he's picked this up. This is Paul, obviously, looking as if he's already put his hand on the rump and fallen off. Um, but you've got over here exactly the same gesture, and I think Rubens has self-consciously picked it up from him and then he's explored it. And I think this is one of the most fascinating clues to Rubens gaining confidence in his own style. Can you see that one rider's going into the painting, another rider oh, in the drawing, and one's going side on. He's rotating it, as you can now do with the latest computer programs, but he can almost do it in his head to get the pose he wants. And also, he's having fun, isn't he, whipping the ice cream? Uh, into these kind of swirls of energy. Even the dog looks like he's half whipped um, as he howls away. You can hear that this is a, a noisy event. I think the Bible said it was quite noisy, you know, when Saul get knocked, got knocked off his horse. And I'm going to show you a different aspect of it by a painting that you've had here. You had it straight after the opening of the Thompson Wing, the Samson Delilah which is also a chimney piece, and I'm going to show you what that means to be a chimney piece. Now it kind of sounds like, well, that's where we put the flat-screen TV, I guess. You know, it's, but in fact, it was much more important than that in the Renaissance. And it affects how you read the painting. So I'm just going to show you a painting done at exactly the same time, this speed bump musculature you've already seen, and this dramatic use of light, candles and so on. And the painting, um, in the end, is just representing a kind of common way of living. There's a towel rail here, and if you can just make out the towel rail here with some glasses above it, um, they're boiling water, you know, all the things. There's a tripod here for the, for the cooking stuff. You've got all this stuff in a, you know, a late uh, 16th century. You've even got a guy coming through a door. So the, the inventive material was already there. It could have been in a pattern book, but he's rethinking it in a new way. And uh, we know a lot about the owner of the painting. This is Nicholas Rockox. And I'm almost certain this young chap visited you from the Hermitage. And you can see him showing off that he's a gentleman of means. He's uh, got the tower of the Cathedral of Antwerp representing, you know, he's a, one of the governors of the city, if you like. His famous antiquity is up there. And uh, he's, he's showing his culture, if you like. And then there's a funny bust of Hercules. I wasted a bit of time trying to work out what we could find out about Rock Ox's room. And then I found it was really easy. There's a painting 
Um, and this is what we'd wish for the massacre of the innocents, but we don't have. But this is what it meant to be above a chimney piece. Can you see how high it is? How high these chaps are? You know, obviously, they weren't very good at axemanship in Antwerp, so they could put a whole tree in the chimney. It was a safe chopping the wood, didn't it? I've always suspected that. But it was a status symbol to have a big chimney. And it was also a status symbol, obviously, to eat oysters and to have a row of antiquities around. This is the same sort of bust you've seen Rockox picking out. In fact, there's a Rubens through the gap, as well as this kind of um, <coughs> summary of Samson and Delilah. And so now we get a clue. And always remember your exotic parents from New, parrots from New Guinea. You know, it's kind of... We still have budgery guys, don't we? Um, but what does it mean in practice to be that, that high? Firstly, it means the light comes from the left. And I'm actually showing you our painting when we lent it to Antwerp. It's only been to three places in the last 40 years. It's been to Vienna, uh, to the Rock Ox House in Antwerp and here. So it's not a painting that travels much. Um, and what you immediately see lit from the left, the frame on the left is brighter, the light catches her shoulder, catches her, his back and doesn't catch the soldiers very much in the doorway. Okay, and that's a real shock because when we photograph this under, you know, the usual incandescent lighting that we photograph, the painting's balance totally changes and these guys jump forward and they look much more intense and this rather abbreviated leg in its actual painting um, you see why it's abbreviated, because you know it's on the wall. It's furthest from the window, the light source, which is here. It's coming in and catching it. And I'm going to emphasise that point because we don't think about that when we go to a gallery. We think you always see paintings dead in front and lit from the front. And I'm actually showing you here. Here's the painting above its fireplace. and The windows are over here. And you already see again, you see the lights getting darker and darker on this side. So if you're an artist, knowing where it's going, you don't paint this in great depth. You do this in a rather splashy general way. And you work on the highlights and the textures of this flesh to get it to work. And I think it's important to think of a massacre in that context. It was a painting designed to be well above our heads. And like, as this finger tumbles down, you know... It, the same thing happens. I'm not going to go into any great depth, but you can track things that are in the picture too. But if you read Rock Ox's um, actual inventory, you can just see here, I better get you the right one, a boy, and then you can see P-U-G-N-A-M. Well, that's, we talk about pugilists. It comes from that word, boxer, a boy boxer. So Rock Ox owned a boy boxer, and he also owned... Um, now I've got to find it again. A Priapus with a skin. That's this chap here, I'm almost certain. So you can st start going through his imagery and going through old drawings and reconstructing, and you get a feeling of what was in the room and how it worked. But the boy box is far more exciting for me because, you know, here he is. You know, we've met him already, but now we know why he's in the painting because he was owned by Rockox, who was Rubens's great friend and earliest patron. So Rubens is making a reference to this antique, or well, they thought it was antique. In fact, it's Paduan, probably about 1,500 little bronze. It's now in Vienna. I couldn't believe it when I stumbled it across in Vienna. I thought, ah, oh, everything's making sense for a change. And it um, doesn't usually. 
And, you know, Rubens does other things. I just show you this is a copy of a goose boy, which he clearly uses in other paintings. So you've got to think of this as an artist responding to sculpture. And lots of audiences don't get that, but if you go up into your Henry Moore gallery, you can't ignore the fact that sculpture has power and you interact with it. And that's the easiest way of thinking of Rubens as a painter. He's interacting with antique sculpture and then the Renaissance's rejuvenation of antique models. And I guess the extreme example, and it's the last time I'm going to mention this naughty pocketbook, is these are river god boys scrambling over the River Nile. And um, you can see that Rubens actually uses it in a painting much, much later from Maria de Medici. I think it's 1622, 1623. And so you get the idea that these putti that he copied quite early on times he actually helps us out, um, you know, work. In fact, Rubens did a hierarchy of babies. He said if you want to do the youngest babies, use these antique ones as a source. If you want to do them older, you know, use the Nile babies. Older still, Hercules wrestling with the snakes. And finally, if you want a really old baby, do the pugilist of rock ox. So, you know, he actually sets out a scale of babyhood and then it all went to, to mush because he had his own. He didn't need that anymore. Anyway, I'm going to leave the chimney piece by um, Samson and Delilah for rock ox and think a bit more about, you know, chimneys in general. And this is the courtyard and these are the actual windows that lit the Samson and Delilah. It's through that window. That's the side left and it's on that wall. So that's how it got lit. And I want to think about Karina, who's our first known owner of the, the Massacre of the Innocents. And he lived in a bigger house. Rock Ox was kind of, you know, medium wealthy in a good suburb. But Karina lived on the main street in the biggest house in the street. And I just give a contrast to this miserable little cheap um, fireplace that Rock Ox has with the Karina fireplace detail. And this is the house Karina lived in. It's unfortunately been renovated, but uh, you have to go inside and you find a few original rooms. You know, they're very proud. They think this is a great uh, Rococo um, house. But it actually goes right through to the Church of St. Jacob, uh, Jacob Church or St. James's Church, if you like. And we know Karina owned everything from the main street right through to the next block. He owned the block. So we know he lived on a big piece of land and if you go inside, there is tantalizingly a blank wall above a fireplace. And there's the scale. This guy's six foot tall. I always forget his name. He's Baron Dedham or something. But he very kindly let me in. And um, I said I wanted him for scale because no one would ever get the idea that the painting was that high up. You know, we never hang paintings that high up now. And, but that's where it sat. So that's where your massacre sat. So you've got to think of yourself crawling on the ground and looking up to get the feeling for how it would read. And the other thing we know about it, it was surrounded by all these tapestries, because this is Karana's coat of arms. It's a tree, an olive branch, really. Um, and this is, does anyone know who gets dropped in the water by his mum? Achilles, I think someone said. Good. 
And that's why you shoot him in the heel, because she was an idiot. She didn't change heels while she was dipping him. So he had one week healed, you know. And um, so this is the Achilles series. And uh, in fact, this is, I think this is Achilles being returned some of a treasure he had. Agamemnon had to give up Briseis, didn't he, as well. And Rubens is rather chivalry. So he makes it look as if Achilles is far more interested in her than the loot, which is not quite the way Homer saw it. Um, and then he had these wonderful Cleopatra dropping the earring in Jordan's. We know these were overdoors. So again, they'd be over the exit signs. You've got to think of these paintings as seen from below. There's one in um, St. Petersburg now. And I, and I tried to work out in my mind's eye, this is when I was very young and enthusiastic, with a postcard of a massacre, how he would come out of the painting leaning over you and how it would sit next to these tapestries. And, of course, the first thought I had is it would be a nice karma on the violence of a subject. Because I mean, there's plenty of action here. You know, here's um, Achilles being told to tame his temper a bit when he's having a discussion with Agamemnon. And I think, well, that's the Briseis one. This is finally, oh, man, this is Paris finally doing him in in the heel with an arrow. That's the death of him. Um, so, but you can imagine it's surrounded by these scenes. And it must have been pretty sumptuous. And these tapestries are four or five metres long uh, and much, much higher than the painting. So you've got to imagine a hall bigger than the hall we're in now surrounded by these tapestries with, at the end, the, the feature, but high up, the painting. And Rubens must have been aware that that's how it was going to look and the painting had to have the power to, to explode out against these bigger and more prestigious uh, art forms because then only the extreme rich could afford a tapestry. They often had gold thread, silver thread. They took uh, years to weave. And, of course, you know, it's not a natural way of getting an image. And I'm just showing you, this is a terrible slide because I happened to see it coming up one day at Christie's in a sale. But if you've got incredibly good imagination, you can see this is a screaming baby being dipped. That's Achilles. And then this one here is, in fact, I think you can just make out the death of um, Achilles here. And so this whole room was absolutely wall-to-wall -wall tapestries. This is um, the, the Princes of Savoy, I think. And it gives you the scale again. There's the chimney piece. So they didn't even have a Rubens. They just had the whole wall dressed up in tapestries. And everyone did. Henry VIII was probably the biggest buyer of tapestries in the uh, 16th century. But they all competed. The Medici set up their own tapestry workshop. Finally, um, in the 1620s, the Mortlake Tapestry Workshop was set up by the English. Tapestries were the most prestigious thing a court could aspire to. And if you were a diplomat who brought peace to England and brought a peace treaty to England, you were given a set of tapestries. That was the biggest gift you could get. Otherwise, you were just given you know, so many ounces of gold plate or something. It was an ordinary diplomat as you went. But it was very regimented. But if you brought a peace, you got uh, tapestries. And in fact, they did hero and Leander tapestries just for that purpose. And as the tapestry got more expensive, you got fewer and fewer of them. I mean, I think it was by about 1635, 
one of the diplomats who was leaving said, but you're only giving me three, and you gave the last one five. And they said, well, that's the way inflation is. You know, you can't have any more. Uh, so they're a very good measure of inflation. And I'm just showing you Karenna's um, own tomb so you get some idea. He had a chapel built, not surprisingly, in the church at the end of his street, uh, Church of St. James's. This is his chapel. This is his vestry next door. And it was with the most elaborate marbles you could get at the time. And it's Carlo Borromeo, not surprising. We have a plague saint, but he was also Milanese. And the Carena came from this tiny little town, town of Anoni, um, north of Milan. And his church was, you know, about the size of a um, container in Anoni. So then he was getting, you know, at the, right near the high altar in the, the, one of the biggest churches in Antwerp he took over. And you can see it became his family vault. And I'll just show you a few details of um, the altarpiece by Jordans, in fact, because Rubens was already dead in the uh, 1650s when he got this. He was knighted. You know, he'd, he'd made it. Um, he was an almoner, uh, which was a kind of pretty prestigious position. He had a country retreat. Um, he'd, and he was basically a hedgy. He was trading on securitizing all sorts of taxes for governments and he was funding um, the Spanish government at that time. He was a very successful merchant. And I'll give you just a detail, because it's sort of almost like Karenna himself. I think it's significant he had Cleopatra dropping her pearl in the vinegar to make the most expensive cocktail in the world, because you can imagine Karenna was rich enough, he could have done that too. And um, I just... I think it's interesting to think of the kind of pow and the awe that that painting must have generated in its own day. And, you know, so next time you see the massacre, you know, look at it from that point of view. There's a lot of history in it. And also, remember this chap, he's above you. You know, I'm down here and he's coming over me. And that's how the painting works. It's meant to work that. It's not, you know, even seeing it from where you're sitting in the um, lower seats, you get more of an idea of its function. I can quickly, it's in the book, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time. I can run through, you know, some of the sources. I didn't find anything new except one thing right at the end. And, you know, this is the famous antiquity. It's one of Niobe, one of the daughters of Niobe protecting her children. She made some boast but pissed off Apollo, so shot all the kids with arrows. It's, in a sense, it's a massacre too from antiquity. And so, but, you know, Rubens has used that idea for one of the fleeing mothers right in the background of a painting. And I just show you, it was a kind of commonly reduced uh, replicas of it at the time. This is a Franken painting, it doesn't matter what it is. And also, Rubens' general view that war is bad. He is deaf as a skeleton. And a nasty soldier, you know, tipping up a child from its mum and misusing the mum. You know, war, Rubens was, spent three years of his life trying to get a peace treaty between Spain and England. He thought peace was really important. And so the painting has some of that in it. I don't think you can overread it as a political painting, but because of how we know Rubens ended up, you can imagine it carries that message. The most exciting thing, I think, though, is the écorché effect. And I just show you a detail of one of the um, Thompson drawings. And you get this little nodge where the, the skull joins the neck. And you, you get it here in the massacre, 
which proves he's actually thinking of ecorchade figures because if any of you ladies like to feel the back of your neck, it's well into the hairline. So he's pulled the hair up to show it. So he wants to show he knows that bit of anatomy. And it's kind of a, it's a nice connection between the drawing and the painting. But the connection I was happier with... I just put this in to show that anatomy wasn't new. This is... Um, Brenda Bix um, kindly let me in today to destroy your drawing collection. And I noticed it's a Pazzarotti drawing where you can actually see the, um, the anatomy of a foot. You know, he studied it skeletally before he's built up the flesh. This is in your treasury, you know, in the sort of soul of your collection, the drawings collection. And I'm just reminding you, you've also got a retouched um, Polidoro de Caravaggio, a kind of Raphael pupil who went round decorating facades. And Rubens obviously collected drawings and retouched them because it was quicker than copying them himself. And, of course, facade painting's great because you don't have to suck up to some grandee to get inside to see the frescoes. You can just look up what's painted outside. So all artists copied them. But this is the one I think is most interesting as an accroche inspiration. And this is a tetroda we've already met. Um, as an example, and you can see you know, just the way you get the, the ligaments to run around the limbs, this kind of um, bubble wrap chest and so on. And if you get it from exactly the right angle, which uh, a brilliant photographer here that did for me today, you can actually see how you get the pose. You know, if you, it's kind of, you, you feel that's what he's doing. And we know it's not artificial because this is the uh, a copy of a lost Rubens drawing. And I've stuck on a Thompson, the back of one of the Thompson drawings you can see at the moment, because the arms, I can't see it from where I am, but I'm sure you can see that the arm sort of links up almost with it. Um, and so that this is kind of showing that what we started the lecture with, this extraordinary uh, kernel of fantastic anatomy drawings or flayed figure drawings. In fact, they are the spine of the painting. He's rejected his, his hard-laboured print sources and gone to this new inspirational uh, anatomical way of making a figure come alive. And of course, as soon as he can do it, and you'll see it in the wall of drawings up there, he can move the figure, he can bend the arms in his own mind, he can rotate it, he can do anything he likes. But it's interesting that he wants to acknowledge, it's almost a homage to Tetroda in uh, this particular painting. And I'll just give you, you know, one more detail to show that Rubens is even more invigorated. You, know, you almost feel you can go down as if it's a river of... Um, ligaments and muscles, which was already there to some degree in Tetroda, but he's exaggerated it. And it's a fantastic example of an artist taking inspiration from quite an unexpected source and taking it further, taking it into a new body language, a new expressive vehicle that makes his paintings really work. The rest of it I think you can get, but there's just a nice little detail. The Crouching Venus, you know, it's pretty obvious. This one was in Mantua, where he was for about six years of his life between 1601 and 1606, um, before he had a Spain junket and uh, a Rome junket and a Genoese junket, if you like. And um, I was looking hard to try and find something in your collection, and this is a David Tenniers, a very kind of humorous drawing that any old monkey can do art, 
And it's interesting that an artist says any old monkey, you know, the ape idea that you can ape things. So they're all monkeys and here's one painting and another one grinding the colour. And on the shelf, and I think this is very telling, and it's quite hard to read, so maybe you'll have to believe me, but there's a crouching Venus here. So you've already got your crouching Venus source. And it's done extremely quickly. Um, I'll have to get back. Venus here, and then there's a Venus and Cupid here too. Uh, and I think someone in your photography would do better than I do with my handy snapper. Um, and it may be clearer. But it's interesting, these are done in about four strokes, both of these figures. And you can just make out there's a jug and something. Um, it's not Planet of the Apes, it's kind of more humorous than that. Um, he, he's trying to show, without even thinking, these are the essential things that every artist should have in his studio. So the crouching Venus is like a kind of metaphor for how you make art. And I, I'm hoping to see next time I come here that you know, there's a, a cast either from the Queen's uh, crouching Venus, which is probably the Rubens one patted the tail on every day on his way to work, or at least or from one of the other versions of the antique one, because it, it would almost complete this wonderful um, collection that happens to be here in Toronto of the creative process of this masterpiece. And i just show you, because it's, it's more legible, that's someone else with their crouching Venus hanging around. And, um, and the babies, I don't think you have to care too much, but this is a statue of sleeping babies that was famous at the time. And it clearly inspires, you know, this cupped hand and this figure, uh, the, the figures in the actual painting. But I think that's it. I, I would like to answer questions if people want to uh, have questions, but I also know it's the evening and you're welcome to make a dash out now. And if you've got the energy, I suggest you go up and look at the painting. See if you can see it slightly differently. Think of it above a chimney. And if I could just say, we have a microphone. We're recording this to put on the, the website. So if you have a question, let us know. There's a microphone either side. Oh, here's one. I refer all questions to the experts in the front row. <laughs> so if I understand correctly, the painting is made about 50 years before this Milanese owner took possession of it. Is that, is that correct? Well, we with? don't know when he took possession. We know the um, Anoni Carena Company, which um, uh, Jacopo Anoni was a member of, got a monopoly on taking goods from Antwerp through the Swiss cantons to Milan, which was another Habsburg city, as Antwerp was then. I haven't gone into politics. And that drove every other merchant in the um, region mad, including the Dutch, because they paid the um, Swiss cantons only to let them through and to rip, rip everyone else off. So he so, was already incredibly rich with that monopoly. So I guess where my question is going really is... Um, but we don't know when he actually bought it. I've looked we, hard. If we don't know who commissioned the painting to be made, no. or for what purpose, or for what uh, physical situation... No, and you're um, dead right. There's a little gap there. No, That's... and you've got to be very, very careful of pushing a reading on it for that purpose. Um, you know, 
if we knew who the patron was mm -hmm. and we knew, you know, what his politics were or, you know, was he involved in a truce or was he a diplomat or anything, it would make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It's just possible Karina could have commissioned it when he first came to um, Antwerp, but we, we don't know. You know, he was there when Rubens had just come back from Italy. They would have known each other from the first day because they lived about 20 yards away. They both went to the same church. They both had the same friends, like Nicholas Rockox and so on. Um, but I don't think he really got rich until the early 1620s when he married. We don't even know exactly when he married, but he has first son, I think, in about 1620 or 1621. Birth certificate survives. Um, and I suspect the dowry of that allowed him to bribe the Swiss cantons, so he got the monopoly. I mean, one can only speculate. And that's, you've got to always be careful. You'd like to say, you know, exactly what this painting was um, in terms of its first owner, but it may have been made for, as a spec painting. And we've, there's evidence of that. The famous painting um, of Argos in Cologne. We know he writes to someone, I've got this painting, do you want to buy it? And you know, when he first came back to Antwerp, he was extremely confident, and he made three or four major paintings, as far as we can see, without a patron. And then we're totally um, sunk, because what we tend to like to say is, you know, this was made for a barmer, so it represents democratic viewpoint. But if it was made just on spec, it's not made for anyone like that. It's made to show I'm the greatest painter in Antwerp, you know, forget all the others, I'm the king. And it more or less happened that way for Rubens. He became court painter and refused to go to work in the court of Brussels. He said, I'm so important, I'll stay in Antwerp and send you the odd FedEx. Any other tricky questions? We don't do any more tricky questions. Any straightforward questions? I think you've overwhelmed them all. Hmm. Ah, question there, I'll come. I'm impressed by uh, how the colors are still quite bright after um, almost 400 years, I guess. Uh, has it been restored at all? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. It's always relevant when you look at any painting. And if you ever think of buying one, it's even more relevant. What's its real physical condition like? Um, the thing that makes this one exciting is we know at least it was ignored after the Prince of Liechtenstein, who was um, the owner from, I think it was about uh, 1704, I forget exactly, but we know when he bought it. He had it, and he was a very smart buyer of very good Rubenses, but um, his grandson didn't get it at all and didn't like the nudity. Didn't think it was suitable for the dining room, I guess, too. And he just flogged it off. And then it went um, to a person who didn't do anything with it, in fact, parked it in the monastery, and it was totally forgotten. It was only when the owner died that it came back up on the market. And so it wasn't clean for the last uh, 80 years or so, which is almost the worst time to be cleaned. As soon as you think you're a scientist and you know what you're doing, you know, I'm a scientist, I can do it right, you always destroy them. Neglect is almost the best thing that can happen to a painting. 
And it's still today, I won't comment on any specific restorers in any specific countries, but they always say, well, 10 years ago they were hopeless, but now we understand the artist. Well, they've been saying that for a long time, and I can live out another 10 years and hear that story again. Um, and the only thing that happened is David Thompson got a guy called Bull, um, who'd be, who's been a very experienced old restorer, to very lightly spit-clean it, just using these, the slight acidity of your saliva, I think it's amylase, to take a little bit of the surface dirt and thin the varnish a bit. So it's still even got the varnish it's had on for the last probably 120 years. And that's a rare survival. What you see in this painting, and you probably can't see it in the detail, I think I've learned how to do this. No, I haven't. There's a mouse. Oh, no, here he comes. Is you can actually go around a limb and you go through strong shadow to half shadow. Is that showing up? should be. And then to brightness. And that's all there. And you get this wonderful physical sense of form. And in our painting, for instance, we go from black to white. We don't have these transitions. We've cleaned them all off. I won't say it's necessary to last restoration, but I wouldn't be amazed if it was either because people didn't really understand that black is the most soluble pigment. And we've got lots of people in our collection, and I'm sure other people have, it's not just the wicked British, that don't have fingernails um, because there's often a black line on them. And, you know, they're standard issue. You might think as a restorer, oh, another fingernail gone. I wonder why he didn't paint fingernails. But they never do. They always know better than the artist. And... Um, so restoration is not necessarily a good thing for a painting unless it's done very sensitively. And what's happened here couldn't be a better solution, just to thin a bit the dirt, the fly spots even, off it, but not even to break it through the varnish layer. And this would be the best preserved Rubens I've seen. Um, because unfortunately when they ripped them out of the churches and took them to the Louvre, Napoleon was a bit of a megamaniac power collector of big paintings, um, they cleaned them. So usually you find the ones that are left in the churches are neglected because, you know, the church is always too mean to put out a bit of money on conservation. But in fact, it's not true in um, the ones in Antwerp. And I don't know of a better preserved Rubens. And that's the quickest test. I mean, there's lots of other reasons why you can admire that painting, but the sheer physicality of it hasn't been compromised. But you're not allowed to talk about this. It's the one thing that you lose your job over, you know, if you talk about people restoring paintings badly. Restorers are always allowed to say that last decade they were terrible, but we aren't as uh, curators. Uh, we've always got to say our restorers are better than yours. Let me pass it back. Hello. Um, continuing on the, the restoration or, um, or lack of, there, there seems to be a crease in the centre that visitors ask about. That yeah, visitors are always a pain in the butt, aren't they? <laughs> We've been trying to do something about that. I think we should have no signage anywhere in the building where we wouldn't get so many. The, the, what, the crease and your, very, your uh, visitors are absolutely right and very observant. The creases are actually caused by the panels because... This is on wood, and you join the planks together. 
and four of the planks haven't moved at all. They're absolutely, you know, it's extraordinary survival. Mostly you get these huge splits and cracks where the joins are because changes in moisture and wood bends and moves. But one has moved, and that's the one the visitors see. So. Um, so that's the expression, and you know, we know um, there's planks all along here um, going this way, and we've actually dated, you can look at the wood grain and you can match the growth with other wood grains, and I remember doing this as a child uh, when this painting first came on loan very kindly to the National Gallery. And it's, it matches two of the panels in the raising of a cross, which means they must be sisters. It doesn't mean anything more. You know, people say, well, it's from the same tree and it's the same plank and they're done at the same moment. But it means, you know, but he went down to the wood merchant and bought a lot of planks and used some for this and some for the other. Not necessarily the same week, but, you know, within pretty rapid succession. Question here. You um, mentioned that Rubens used uh, boxers and porters as male models. Did he use live female models at all? Well, I can't see. If you wave, I can't see where you're speaking from. Sorry, I've got you. Yeah, right. You're not allowed to ask sexist questions like that. He used, he used persons for models. Uh, in general, artists don't use women. There's a problem when you bring a girl into the studio. Um, and you've got a lot of guys. Remember the monkey grinding the colour? He seems to stop grinding. You know, I don't know what it is, but there's a problem. And we know this from not from Ruben so much, but from Raphael. Raphael's Madonnas are always sitting there and they've got their swimming togs on and they're clearly boys told to look like women. Um, and so we know you generally don't bring girls in studios. Um, it's bad for productivity and art is a business. I mean, I keep reminding you this. Um, and I don't think Rubens, funny enough, I'm not going to go all the way back, but those funny early draw, uh, Venuses we did and showed you in the early Judgment of Paris, it didn't look like he knew that much about girls' tails because girls' tails are very nice, but he kind of was doing those same pinch tails. I'm very conscious of pinch tails. You know, when we were ever doing handstands and gymnastics, we were always told, tighten your stomach and pinch your tail because it keeps your body rigid and you can, you know, do backflips and somersaults easier because it's an energy force. You know, pinch tails are a good thing in some ways, but you don't expect them on females. And, um, and I think, you know, he was more into horses' rumps. He got that earlier, you know. Um, Later on, of course, Rubens got tails. I mean, and he had a wife, and uh, it wasn't a problem. But I'd like to know the evidence for females in studios because I'm. I mean, we've actually got Sasha. Did they do it in the medieval times? They weren't that shy. We know, in fact, Sasha will back me up. There was an entrance account by a diplomat in about 1490, and he said they had the three graces and they were naked. Um, so, and certainly breasts weren't a problem, but um, other bits, I think, were more of a problem. I mean, Elizabeth I was always being reported for running around in a slightly free state with her top end, and um, 
Anne of Denmark um, was notorious for advocating breastfeeding in public. Everyone else hired wet nurses, but she clearly didn't think there was a problem. Um, but nudes in studios, I don't think it happened. Rubens feels as if he's drawing nudes a lot of the times because he can conceptualise and rotate and get the poses right. And those antique models were pretty good hints of what a crouching woman might look like. Um, someone can prove me wrong. Is that wrong? Lloyd knows all about this. No, he's never seen one either. <laughs> I mean, it's very interesting. If you could do a, go to a life class, which we all can do now, um, there's always a moment of um, distraction. And then, of course, people get on to drawing and realise that that's what they're there for. But... He certainly painted his kids and he seems to paint his wife in fur wraps. The second one. Yeah, the second one. He, that's a very good point. He likes painting his second wife. But he, uh, yeah, and she, he found her pretty good. You know, he said, here, I'm a 50-year-old and I've done pretty well. I didn't want a snobby court aristocrat as my second wife. I'm marrying this woman. But he didn't actually say she was 16, but she was, yeah. Um... But he never paints her completely nude, uh, though the, the closest we get is the Spanish ambassador does write back to Phillips saying, the free graces still aren't ready, but the rumour is he has used his wife as a model and she's the most beautiful woman in Antwerp. But do you think he really did that? I mean, apart from anything else, Ruben was a so Rubens was a social climber. He'd been knighted by Philip, he'd been knighted by Charles. Would you paint your wife naked? You know, I think there was a bit of a myth even then that you'd see her and you'd know basically where the lumps and bumps were, but would you paint her? <laughs> I think we better, on that note, we'd better go to dinner. I think it's degenerating. I, I was just going to say I, I want to thank you so much. This was... You didn't disappoint us. That, that was fascinating. I've always been fascinated also by the whole fact that it was, a, you know, that it was over a, a mantelpiece, that painting. I'm just trying to imagine. But now I see the context. I understand a bit. I remember coming to the National Gallery in London when the massacre was there before we were ready to receive it here and, and seeing it in the context of all the other Rubens. And it sort of reduced the sort of the, the violence and the drama in it because there were so many of them. So seeing the context that you were showing, I, I understand. But thank you very much. I'm now also very interested in the social history of the time. You've raised many points that I want to talk to you about over dinner. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.